groups that are vying for authority, groups that are vying for power, will will manipulate history the same way they might uh, manipulate the statistics around the, the claimed efficacy of a medical product. You know, all, all information is up for being uh, uh, misused as well as used honourably. So I, th- I think that's so. In terms of in terms of who you said who writes history, well, history is just a body of of information that's that's exploited, mined, and repurposed by groups looking to influence events and to take control of them. You're listening to the Corbett Report. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, in a conversation that is being recorded in July of 2023. And I had to think about that because I remembered this month started with a J-U, but I forgot which one it was. Anyway, that aside, today I'm very excited to be talking to Mr. Neil Oliver, who I am sure will be familiar to a lot of people in the Corbett Report audience, if only from his deservedly viral monologues that he has been delivering as part of his GB News show for the past couple of years, speaking just plain common sense truth in an authoritative way that I think obviously resonates with a lot of people out there who have been absolutely sick of the blather that passes for political discourse in the establishment media these days. But of course, as I'm sure many other people in the audience know, Neil Oliver did not start in the past couple of years. He has a long and voluminous history. And if you want to know about that, you turn to Wikipedia, of course, (laughs) which describes Neil Oliver as a Scottish television presenter, archaeologist, historian, and author, which is a fascinating mixture, which I'm sure there's a story behind. But without further ado, let's bring him on. Neil Oliver, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, James. It's lovely we met. I don't know if the audience know this or needs to know this. We met at at a conference in Bath, couple of months ago now and uh, and we we decided it would be mutually beneficial for us to have a, a conversation like this and I'm, I'm delighted with one small hiccup along the road we've, we've finally uh, collided in this space and great it's, it's, it's lovely to to take part in a in another conversation about matters important it sure is. So let's start on matters maybe important, maybe trivial. I don't know. Let's find out. Uh, that biography that I glancingly alluded to there is an interesting one. It's not often that you meet someone who is described as a television presenter slash historian slash archaeologist slash author. How on earth did all of that develop? How did you get, how did yeah. a big television presenter get to these dark corners of the interwebs talking to a conspiracy realist like me? Um. It's, I often wonder who writes these Wikipedia pages. <laughs> that, that who who is or are the author authors of those of those pieces? And sometimes I do look at it and spot things that aren't right, but I just I just let the things like what you just read out is fair enough. I I am um, I, I uh, always a love of history and English at school uh, that translated into an archaeology degree at Glasgow University in the second half of the nineteen eighties. I worked as an archaeologist for a few years, couldn't make any money, uh, joined a local newspaper in Scotland and became a trainee, a cub reporter, qualified, worked in newspapers and journalism for a few years. Uh, and then all sorts of things started to happen because I, I was never a, I'm a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a butterfly. I was never an academic. I was never going to be pulled into the academic world. So I was just dodging about trying to make a living, really. And with with my sort of journalistic uh, 
sensibilities. I became aware in the in the mid nineties of the internet, and well, long story short, I ended up being part of the team building Britain's third website, as it was then in about ninety three, ninety four, BT.com, British Telecom. And it was the Royal Bank of Scotland and, and Tesco supermarket in the UK that had websites and, and British Telecom built one as well. And I, I, as a journalist, I had just been fascinated. I mean, that, it, to you and me, or to, the 90s doesn't feel terribly long ago, but it was that long ago that the internet was this uh, terra incognita. And I got, I got in amongst all of that, maintained though at the same time my interests in archaeology. And I got, I kept on being involved in archaeological projects, one of which turned into television. I was part of a team excavating a battlefield in South Africa, a Victorian battlefield, came to the attention of television, turned into a television series for the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, that ran for a little while. And from that point on, which was in the early 2000s, I've been involved and dodging about in the world of documentary, history, archaeology, television, filmmaking. Uh, and then, <laughs> then we came to the whatever the COVID debacle. I had I had put my head up above the parapet previously about certain political things, Scottish independence, which I wasn't a fan of. Uh, so that had brought me into a kind of a, a political crosshairs. Then when the when the lockdowns started, I spoke out on on talk radio about. What a disaster I increasingly felt that was going to be. Then I got picked up by an emerging, a fledgling new channel called GB News, which you mentioned, uh, and I've been involved with GB News since its since its birth over two years ago now. And all all in the while, I've also always written books. I've written uh, light, populist, I suppose, uh, history and archaeology books. So I have been involved with all of the things that you're describing, but none of it was planned. <laughs> none of it was carefully coordinated. It's just been a product of, of dodging about. You're trying to make a living and at the same time following subjects of interest to me. That uh, I understand that completely because that's exactly how I ended up here doing this. It's just, well, it just kind of happened and it made sense and it brings all of the things I like together. So why don't we talk about that subject that is near and dear to your heart and mine, and I think probably a lot of people who are watching this uh, this conversation right now, which is history. Um, because as, uh, unfortunately, in the miseducation system, I'm sure a lot of young children um, start to think of history as just names and dates and facts and figures and sort of boring, dry, dusty material in old books that has to be memorized and regurgitated on command and tests and then forgotten and never used again in our life. But of course, the more contemplative people in the in the audience, I think will understand. No, history is a living, breathing thing that is with us and that in some ways helps to shape and guide our understanding of the, the world itself and then how we act and interact within that world, which is a pretty heady topic. So let's broach it this way. I want to draw the attention of the audience to a lecture, the 2021 Smith lecture that you delivered at the New Culture Forum a couple of years ago that... Um, uh, that, it was a it was a it was a good lecture, and what really really struck me as I was listening to this lecture was your recounting of the story of the fateful final voyage of the HMS Birkenhead, 
And I will not do a disservice to that story by attempting to butcher or summarize that here. I really, truly want people in the audience to follow the link that I will obviously put in the show notes so they can go and watch Neil telling that story. It's a very interesting and, and affecting story. But the thing that really struck me about the story of the Birkenhead and the Birkenhead drill was that in my entire life, up until that moment, sitting there watching you delivering that lecture, I never in my entire life had heard of the Birkenhead drill. Of course, once you know what it is, oh, oh, I, of course, I know that particular procedure, yes. But I didn't know it was called the Birkenhead drill. I had no idea it was about this specific incident on this specific voyage that took place in the 19th century. There was a specific ship where this specific thing happened. And so, again, the details are fascinating and interesting, and I hope people will go and check them out. But the point is that in my entire life, I had never once stopped to think, oh, this is a specific thing that had a specific starting point in a specific story in history. And there were actual men and women who were affected by this. And many, many people died and gave their life in service of this thing that has become this tradition that I thought was just some ancient mariner tradition from the sands of time or something. No, it was a specific story. And there was something about the learning of the specificity of that history, that there was an actual story behind this, and uh, uh, that has resonated and, and, and obviously um, spread around the world and come down to us to today, that made me really start to think in a different way about history and the effect that it has on us and what it means that we are starting to in some ways disconnect from our history, lose our history, have our history retold or reimagined to us in brand new uh, ideological projects that are being launched in the acad academia and elsewhere to, to re uh, reimagine and re-understand re where we come from, etc. Um, and I guess this just sort of brings up the broader question of history as story. And I think this is obviously, in some way, this is what appeals, I think, probably probably to you, definitely to me, about this entire, um, this entire narrative, is that history as a story is something that is shaped by different generations, understood and imagined by different generations in different ways, and that shapes that, that culture that comes around the story of history. I, I really want to start with a very specific question for you, but first, let, let's start with just broaching this subject in general. History as story and how stories are shaped by different generations um, and what that says about those cultures. That's a, that's a lot to talk about, but I just want to put that out on the table and start the conversation from there. Neil, I'll turn the microphone over to you. I have always appreciated history as story. Uh, you, you mentioned on that Wikipedia page that I'm you know, routinely described as a historian, but in these troubled days of experts and non-experts that we all learned to understand ourselves as, you know, I don't have a degree in history and, and I, I've never really, I've never claimed to be a, a historian. I am an archaeologist who loves history because, you know, the two, the two run parallel to one another as far as I'm concerned, you know, the one's embedded in the other. Uh, so because I'm not an expert, I'm able to come at history as a child, really, still to this day. I just love the stories and the storytelling of it. And what you were talking about there, the, the way in which different stories resonate differently with different generations at, at different times and for different reasons, is almost entirely why I love history and storytelling the way that I do. 
the event that you're alluding to, the HMS Birkenhead, the, and, and from it, the Birkenhead drill is is what is, that's women and children first that we've all heard of when a ship starts to sink, the cry goes out, women and children first. Well, it, it first happened spontaneously on the HMS Birkenhead, a ship that was sinking with insufficient lifeboats. It was largely soldiers on the, the, that were the that were the contingent aboard the ship, their wives and children. Some of their wives and children were there, and the priority was given to those wives and children in whom all of those people were invested. And so, what we call women and children first is properly described as the Birkenhead drill. And up until that point, when when ships got into disaster, the cry was "Save keeper, save yourselves if you can, every man for himself." But Uniquely, aboard the Birkenhead, a different path was taken, and it and it changed maritime history. But why I there are many reasons why I love that story, but partly it's because we tell stories sometimes be, to give maybe each other and maybe more importantly the, the next generation coming through something to aspire to. You, you know, we can we can use storytelling uh, to offer up what might be the best of our nature. So exactly what unfolded aboard the Birkenhead, like all history, will to some extent now be enfolded in myth and legend. There'll be a, there'll be a, uh, there'll be a nub of truth in there, but it will have been embellished and it will have been spun to suit the agendas of, of various people since then who, who have had cause to draw upon it as a as a message, as a as a lesson that might be learned. But I I, am, I love the idea that, that people took what happened aboard the Birkenhead and offered it up to the to the next generation and said, here is a standard of behaviour to which we might aspire. It is undeniably true that in terrible circumstances we might individually and collectively decide to do more or to try and do more than we otherwise might have thought we were capable of. You know, it's history as inspiration. It's holding up an, an ideal. So that whether or not, I, I, I do hope people follow the link and maybe find out more about the, the story of the, of the Birkenhead, but at the very least, it's, it's a target. It's an aspiration. You know, it's to it's to wish upon a star. You know, it's to look up and think oh, I might never reach there, but at least it's a it's an honourable target. And so that's that's why the story of Birkenhead appeals to me the way that it does. And I, I've thought about this a lot in the last few years, the last couple of years. And, and, and in part, it's because as soon as any time I put my head above the parapet and talk about history, people pile on on social media and say, ah, but he's not a historian. It's, it's, it's one of those automatic responses, as though because I'm not a historian, I shouldn't open my mouth and tell stories from history, as though, as though I and many others should be barred from talking about history. It's a, it's a completely alien concept to me. But I, I've realised, which I think is important in the last few years, that I haven't and don't uh, create my identity from any assumed intellectual superiority. It's not how I see myself. And when I began to intuit from what was going on around me, that much of what I had 
taken on as history, as fact, was not. It was spin. And some of it was falsification. And some of it was misinformation. And some of it was stories that had started out in one place and been manipulated. But because I hadn't based my my intellectual identity on my expertise, it wasn't. It was. It was uncomfortable to admit to myself and then to the viewing public that I had got a lot of stuff wrong. But it didn't involve me dismantling my personality. I'm. I'm still able to be me, having openly said, "You know, it's what I used to tell you about such and such an event. I think I might have got that wrong." And it's not entirely my fault because it's what I was told by people above me in the food chain and I took it on trust. But now I've learned to be cynical and sceptical in a way that I hadn't previously been in the first 50 years of my life. But I, I feel that there are a lot of people, well, history is just one discipline in the field of science, let's say, uh, who in order to allow, to open the door, to let in the possibility that you've been had, that you swallowed a narrative that you took on faith and on trust that which you ought to have questioned more diligently. That's a, that is a new reality for a lot of people. I, I was okay going through it, saying I got a lot of stuff wrong all my life, and now I'm busily trying to relearn. I think for a lot of people out there, the experts in inverted commas, they'd rather go down with a ship than contemplate a different version of events. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And go down with the ship. What an interesting analogy. But yeah, um, so let's, okay, so the story, the idea of story propagating and bringing out the best or potentially the worst in humanity, depending how that story um, propagates, um, is, for example, with the story of the Birkenhead um, and, and how that story propagated, as you know, for example, in your lecture, um, when the, the then king of Prussia, the coming German emperor, um, Frederick Wilhelm, heard about this, he decided to institute it as this will be the new standard for, for our Navy. This is, what, this is the way it should be, because he was so affected by that story. Um, again, that speaks, I think, to the fact that, yes, the, these types of stories can, can resonate, can change and shape people's understanding of the world and their perceptions and, and how they act in the world. But, of course, that can be done for the greatest and noblest uh, intentions and means, and it can also be used cynically to, um, to essentially enable evil. And the, uh, there are many, I'm sure, examples that we could think of of that, but something that strikes me immediately is uh, wartime atrocity propaganda. The fake stories or highly, highly distorted stories that get passed around in times of war to, of course, make the enemy into this horrible, evil, goblin, monster army that deserves to be killed, essentially, to try to motivate people to to kill. And, for example, if we want to stick with that, that German analogy, obviously, World War One and the atrocity propaganda that was passed around, the babies on bayonets and all of that, that was um, taken in by much of the public and then later revealed to, of course, have been complete propaganda nonsense, but only after it had had, had its effect for example, in World War One, we can think of the ways that our understanding of the 20th century has been shaped by all sorts of narratives about the the good guys doing the right things for the right reasons. And don't worry, guys, Churchill was a wonderful man. Just don't look at this or that or this or the other thing that he did, etc., etc. There are many ways that our understanding of the world can be shaped and ultimately used to guide people, I think, down wrong paths. 
So I guess that really brings up the question of who is determining this story? Who is, if history is a story, who gets to write it and under what circumstances? And that in and of, it, of itself may be something of an historical question because it does take certain historical knowledge to understand who shaped various historical narratives along the way. Um, I can think of a few examples off the top of my head, but in your travels around history, um, what have you encountered along these lines of the people who are using narratives, shaping stories in order to motivate pu the public into one course of action or another? I, I, I suppose, you know, there are probably many answers you could give to that question. But I think it's groups that are vying for authority, groups that are vying for power, Will, will manipulate history the same way they might uh, manipulate the statistics around the, the claimed efficacy of a medical product. You know, all, all information is up for being uh, uh, misused as well as used honourably. I think, it, and it's probably always, you know, you've always, we, you and I grew up, I'm not sure what age you are, I, 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 but you and I grew up, grew up in a world in which there were easily identifiable, mutually opposed ideologies. We, we certainly grew up, I grew up, now let's leave the, the, the authenticity and the veracity <laughs> to one side, but I, I grew up thinking that left was left and right was right, you know, left wing and right wing. And I, I thought they were two clearly defined disparate groups. And that there was, each group was using history slightly differently uh, in order to further its in order to further its agenda. And depending on which, with which group a person, an individual sympathised, they would tend to believe that group's account because it accorded with the way that they were wanting to see the world. My, my suspicion, and now I say, I, I'm not, I'm learning as I go these, these few years. I, and so I, I don't know if I'm just very late in the game and catching up with something that's always been the case, but it, it feels very much now that there's a, a uniparty above us, so uh, and uh, uh, the, the the ideologies have become one in a way that if it was the case before, I, I wasn't as aware of it. But I certainly now, I just put my hands up and say, I now think that, say in the case of in Britain, there's no meaningful difference between Conservatives and Labour. They're just, one wears a red T-shirt and one wears a blue T-shirt. But I, I, I don't see any meaningful difference between those two ideologies anymore. And I think it's it's therein that the danger lies, because the convergence also means that where once there might have been alternative interpretations of, of historical events events being offered, I now fear that increasingly we're only being offered one. We're just everything's coming together as as one explanation for everything. Such that I can envisage a point in the future where you might almost just be handed a laminated card about the past. This is what happened. It's unchanging and it's laminated because you'll never need to change anything that's here. These are the facts and they sit side by side with the science. So I, th I think that's, so in terms of, in terms of who, you said, who writes history? Well, history is just a body of, of information that's, that's exploited, mined and repurposed by groups looking to influence events and to take control of them. And I think in the in at points in the past we may have been saved from some of the worst of it by there being competing groups. My worry now is that there's a, a quickening and a and a coming together and a convergence 
into a, you know, a, a centralised authority from which we're just going to get a, a fossilised, calcified, immobile version of events that, that won't be being contested by anyone. You know, such an important point, contested, um, because history, like exactly like science, should be a point of contention at all times. Because yes, there are certain objective archaeological facts and other things that we can point to, but everything else that is built on top of that is narrative, is based on interpretation and story and fitting things together in ways that may or may not make sense. So as a thought exercise, imagine the his history textbooks of the year 2100 writing about the times that we're living through right now and the the page or two that they would devote to the the past few years of scamdemic what what do you think would be involved in that summarization well again it very much depends on who's writing that history textbook but i could imagine if it was written by the same types of people who are uh, essentially setting the narrative for our, our own day and age, it will be exactly what we're hearing. Uh, the, the safe and effective and all of these other um, phrases will become the history. This is what happened. And that has to, has to, for people who understand the, the, the fact, no, there's a lot going on here. And no, that's not going to be accurately reflected in that history textbook. That has to fundamentally change the way that we look at the history textbooks that we were looking at. And so, oh, the history of the Spanish flu or something like, uh, and here's the, the three paragraphs that we, we studied on that in our, in our school days, or um, the, the JFK assassination. Uh, what, what kid growing up today would think twice about, well, okay, so there was this lone nut and he did this thing and that was that, and that's all that means. Again, until we have that space for contesting these narratives and talking about them, um, the, the, I, I think you're very right. The drive to shut down those, those uh, competing narratives is it, really the, the, the biggest problem. Oh, uh, you're still there. I, James, you're touching, you're touching it upon things that I think are of fundamental importance, and it, it, it's, it's things that I, I contemplate more and more all the time. And I, I very much, I wish, sometimes I think if I had my time over, I would study language and linguistics and philology, because I think, I think a lot of uh, the truth gets uh, lost in plain sight because we take for granted the words we're using rather than paying attention to exactly the precision of what we're saying as defined by the words that we're using. Now, in your previous question there, you said the people who write history, who write that history, I think, did I imagine that or did you use the word write? I, I believe I did, yes. And writing, you know, the very act of that, the uh, manuscript and, and you know, holding a stylus or a pen or whatever in your hand and, and writing on a, on a page or on a slate is, is very different from what people say. I, let, me, let me clarify. I am aware now that we're on the cusp, potentially, of a future in which people no longer need to read and write. Audible and the rest of those apps that, you know, you can now have everything read to you. You know, you get read a book. You don't have to read it for yourself. And 
shortly at the same time you, it won't be much longer that people are required to write because you can speak now you can dictate and your tele your phone your mobile phone will translate that into text so or emojis in a generation <laughs> yeah in a generation's time you won't need a ch- children people coming through won't need to read and write now that's we better pay attention to that reality because you've only got to look back to the uh you know the to the the time before the bible and whatever were available in the vernacular that in order to hear the word of god or truth or whatever you had to go to your local church and hear a special person tell you it you know the priest would read from the latin from the vulgate and you'd get all oh, right well that's what god thought right okay fair enough but you had no way of knowing that that priest was actually reading you the word of God as it appeared in the Bible. He could have been making it up as he went along and passing it off. And so, the, so the, it, the, it was of an, an absolute necessity. You know, part of the Reformation idea was that people would read the Bible for themselves in the language that they spoke to each other every day and thereby establish a direct relationship with the truth, not mediated for you by uh, you know, an intermediate layer of priests. It, so, and look how vulnerable people were in those circumstances to having no way of verifying what they were being told. They had to take it on trust. If we step into a future where you just get read by a machine a story. So let's let's say you think that you've downloaded uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. And, you, and, the, and the machine voice reads you that story, you'd have to take on trust that you were actually getting the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn because they could have been edited, altered, rewritten completely and passed off as Solzhenitsyn. Unless you've actually got a hard copy of the Gulag Archipelago from you know 1972, you would have no way of knowing what you were actually being fed and, and having it represented as Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago. So we have to be very, very careful. So who writes history? At, at least at least if we all have notebooks and pens and we can actually write things down and in two weeks' time look back at it and it won't have changed or been deleted or edited, then then you've got something upon which you can rely. But if all of your information is just is just virtual, digital, streamed at you, you've got no you've got no way of second guessing where that's coming from or, or the process by which it was created. So I keep on saying to people, the future's got to be analog in part mm. and buy books, mm. buy books that were, mm. that were, get them out the, the secondhand bookshops, get hard copies of books that were published in the 70s and 80s and whatever and hold on to them because in 50 years time, if you get the updated digital version of that book, they might be very, very different things. You know, this isn't just some sort of theoretical kind of concern. This is an actual ongoing concern that real historians in the present day have. And I know that because I was talking several years ago, I interviewed Nomi Prinz about her book, uh, All the President's Bank Bankers. And that is a wonderful and careful telling of the story, the history of the relationships between um, powerful bankers and presidents in American history, going from the 19th century into the 20th century up to the doorstep of the 21st century. And as as something that she said in the course of our conversation that hadn't really occurred to me was, yes, 
as a historian, you can kind of dive in, you can get your teeth around the, the, the correspondence, the letters, the documents that are in the various presidential archives up until you start getting into the, you know, Obama age. And suddenly all of this is ephemeral email things that who knows how much of that has been deleted and how much is actually available and what's been altered. And you just cannot get the same degree of detail into the history in the recent years as you could a hundred years ago, which kind of strikes us as kind of the opposite, I think, of our intuition. We have we have everything now. We can collect all of the data. Well, actually, no. Now all of the data is this digital ephemera that can disappear in the fart of the yeah. digital wind. Uh, there's a real yeah. question here about how we actually preserve the history of what we are experiencing right now. More and more people are operating on platforms like whatever, Signal and so on, that they've got a it's a timer running on them. So the, the thing that they said yesterday just just disappears. Or, or, or does it? I mean, maybe it gets, maybe it gets <laughs> The NSA has a copy, you know, don't worry. <laughs> but it, it appears, it's something, so you can't even look back necessarily. At an, you know, you talk about an email thread, you know, that was maybe a conversation back and forth between you and one or more other people going back years. But if people just opt for saying, well, I'm going to only let my stuff exist for 24 hours and then it'll be... <laughs> gone, then we're going to live like goldfish in a bowl. Our attention span will be just what we were, only what we read this morning. And by tonight, it's gone. Tonight, it's gone. And tomorrow's a new day. And, you know, and all all the facts will be different then. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess the other thing that strikes me is, in some ways, it's comforting to think there is still the question of who will be writing the history textbooks of the future. As you say, well, what do we even mean by writing? I mean, will there be writing in the future? But also the question of who, as opposed to what? And I mean that in the sense that today, in the 21st century, we have reinvoked the Oracle, but now the Oracle is Alexa or whatever device is sitting on your in your kitchen, uh, waiting for you to come along and say, hey, uh, Alexa, what happened on 9-11? And it will tell you in three sentences, oh, you know, there were some 19 men with box cutters armed by a man and a dialysis in a cave halfway around the world. And Okay, so that's it. And that will be people's access to this vast sum of all of human history will be instantaneous. And the feeling that we will all have that, well, yes, all of this data is there and I can delve into it if I want to. But anyway, I can just get the summary. And this summary will be provided by some algorithm that's being programmed by some billionaire-run corporation for your benefit, trust me, guys, uh, should be truly scaring us, I think. There, there is a, always, I'm, I'm always drawn back to, you know, what ancient wisdom. And you read some of it, I read some of it years ago, and it didn't really, I thought, well, yeah, whatever. But it's now, many years later, that, that, that I see, I, I see as though for the first time what that person meant or seemed to have meant. You know, so that when, you know, when Socrates had an axe to grind about writing, because he, he, he considered it, he dismissed it as a trick, you know, that you were going to fool people into thinking that they knew something because they had read it or they had written it. And that he, he his contention, well, you know, was that it was only that which you had in your memory that was actually knowledge or any or any knowledge that you could lay any kind of claim to. And now I think... You know, just you know, just had this discourse about the importance of the manuscript and, the, or at least the physical manifestation of writing. But but, but if when you when you 
when you take the logical steps backwards, then you think, well, maybe, you know, what's required is that is that people consciously, the way you used to learn things by rote, and that, and that people used to exploit their memory as a machine, however flawed human memory might be. If you wash up on a desert island naked and with nothing else having survived from it, you'll only have what's inside your head to draw upon. And 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 sometimes I think that we ought to be uh, remembering the value of remembering, actually making a, a physical store in our own heads of what we consider to be important information. And, and you know, and not so very long ago, really, in the scheme of things, you know, there was an art of memory, and people used to build houses of memory, and maintain that architecture in their imagination and fill it with the things they wanted to remember. And they were able to draw upon it as though they were, you know, helping themselves to the contents of, of the inside of a of a, a mansion, a palace of memory. And I used to read about that and think, what a lot of nonsense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now I, and now I think, oh my God. Oh my god. <laughs> there's something to probably, that. There's something, there's definitely something to but, that. And late in the day, you know, I'm I'm trying to build my own little bungalow of yeah, memory. Yeah, <laughs> much yeah. upstairs. Uh, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others. Ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that'll help me when I get stranded on the desert island, though. But at any rate, at least that. Well, it be. will because. It, but the concept, the concept, the philosophical concept of the art of memory was that not only did it, but not only did it enable you to just remember. But the but the concept was that it, depending on what what you you put you had a mnemonic or something that was your memory key to remember that speech by Pericles or or whatever and and maybe beside it you put something else to make you remember something else. Unbeknownst to you in your subconscious, those two things being side by side would spontaneously generate a third thing that you hadn't even known. So there was a there was a philosophical reason that for in a in a in a house of memory properly stocked and properly maintained, you you're actually the sum of your wisdom would actually grow. It wasn't just dusty gathering in in there gathering dust. It was actually it was actually making more knowledge. You know, so you say what use will that little bit of of um, of, of Hamlet be to me on my desert island? Well, it depends where it's sitting beside in your in your head. You know. And, you know, hypothetically, the the confluence of that with something else would actually maybe generate a little bit of useful information that would help you survive another day. At, at any rate, it helped me understand Star Trek VI a lot better. Um, all right. So I, I guess this is something positive. And I always like to try to get, arrive at a spot that we're not just talking about the problems and the evil and the horrible things that we're facing, but something positive that we can take away from this. One of which is just the act of memory. And this is this is not just something that we should rely on, that don't worry, the Oracle will take care of it for you. No, this is, this is a personal responsibility. I guess the other aspect of this, in, when it comes to shaping narratives out of history, telling and preserving and and transmitting stories that are of use is there a way to do this or are there certain things that we should be thinking about with regards to this for the coming generations what should we be passing on how should we be reclaiming history from those who would seek to rewrite it in ways that are beneficial to the power establishment and the status quo and to make it more beneficial to us as real lived human beings on this planet 
Oh gosh, that's a big one. I in, think, in, in I, one paragraph I, or less, please. <laughs> I think it's. I think. I think it is beholden upon us to each of us to curate as much as we can. Actually, I think there's something very practical and very physical about the necessity to hold on to books, and and correspondence and 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 data of of all sorts as long as it's hard copy that doesn't you know that doesn't delete and doesn't require battery life and so on and so on i think we need to ensure that the as big a a reservoir of of material exists which from which we can distill at a, at a later date you know i would i would i would advocate for the for retaining physically as much as possible celluloid film dvds and cds even vinyl records books on paper uh art tangible things you know in the manner of the the great you know aircraft hangar full of 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 archaeology at the end of indiana jones and the and the raiders of the lost ark you know, I think we do. We we need a repository of as much material as we can, uh, rather than giving into the temptation to distill down at this point and say that which we have distilled now is the only liquor we will ever want from from that that greater quantity. Um, and I think I. I, I always have, as, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, I've always and only really approached history for fun. I love the storytelling of it. And and believe it or believe it not, and question my sanity or not, I don't trouble myself too much anymore with persuading myself that I've got to the truth. I, I, I don't believe anymore in absolutes, I think it's I think it's it's more important to, as I say, to retain as much raw information as possible and and keep that and pay attention to it and enjoy it for what it is. You know, enjoy the Greek myths, enjoy Anglo-Saxon stories, enjoy what the Vikings and the Norse populations understood of the cosmos. Keep all of that. Don't trouble yourself too much with whether you think it's true or that it reflects any kind of fact keep it i would i would just advocate amassing and keeping as much as possible and and letting the you know the preoccupation with the truth look after itself in the future in that in that same way that we should be remembering to say that science is a conversation without end there's never the science there's never consensus or there shouldn't be it's just the last thing that someone said in the conversation before the the next reply. But I think to ask me, I don't have anything approaching the necessary wisdom to know how we're going to insulate ourselves in the future from the the ultimate uh, misapplication and misuse of history. Well, here's here's one thing I think we could all agree on. And anyone who does not agree on this point, I just I cannot imagine how they how they can even conceive of the world. But the point is uh, that you're making very forcefully is that we should retain as much of this as possible rather than try to censor as much as possible. And censorship is always a, a, a horrible and terrible thing. But in times past, 
It was exceptionally difficult for any regime, no matter how tyrannical or authoritarian, to literally collect every single manuscript and every single book and every single copy of a particular um, piece of history or fiction or whatever it is and completely destroy it in a big bonfire. Uh, It's been attempted, but not often um, actually successfully completed. But how easy is it today? when everything is digital, to flip a switch and to digitally remove all artifacts and traces of a James Corbett or a Neil Oliver. And that day, if it, if it isn't here today, it will be in the very near future. You're so right, because I can remember when it appeared that um, with, with the advent of, of things digital, that we were going to be able to retain and remember everything. I, I can remember, you know, some, you'd land your bed at night and, and almost, it was almost like a form of drowning. You know, you would think every single scrap, every text, every email, every electronic digital utterance, every one and zero, is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hang around us. You know, you could feel uh, claustrophobic with the presence of all this data. And yet 20, 30 years later, the truth appears to be that it's, it, it's the contrary to that. The, the, the digitizing of everything has just turned or is in danger of turning the sum of human wisdom into so much confetti that will just be that'll just it'll be less than confetti. It will just disappear. And I've, I've wondered in my in my non my non scientific, ill educated way that the, the cloud, even 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 with a benevolent uh, regime that with the best will in the world, wanted to retain all of the information, every conversation, every every birthday wish between grandmother and grandchild, wanting to have all of it. We know, unless we're very much mistaken, that the cloud, or, or whatever its latest iteration really is, is vulnerable at all times to destruction by whatever electromagnetism and solar flares and all of the rest of it. Is it really wise in any in any meaningful sense to have all of our eggs in one electronic basket? You know, when that when that solar flare comes and which were long overdue, one judging by the by the cycles of such things, and the and the you know the the lights go out on all the server farms all across North America or whatever. What's the what's the fallback? Well, you know. We we need that we need the hard copy, and now we've, now we've persuaded ourselves that now everything's everything's fine, just translated into ones and zeros. Disturbing, very disturbing. Yeah, there's a lot of paths that we are trotting in this conversation. Not not, not many of them lead to happy places. <laughs> I guess uh, since uh, to to me, I think. The thing that really appeals about history is what it says to us in the present and and the way it shapes our future. Because again, the way that we understand, conceptualize ourselves, our place in history is the way that we will act, which will influence the types of things we bring into this world. So do you have a positive picture of where humanity will be 10, 20, 100 years from now? Or is it <laughs> unfailingly doom-laden? <laughs> If if we remember where we've been, we'll be all right. You know the principle of dead reckoning as navigation, you know, where you know where you are because you've remembered and paid attention to where you've been. 
I think there's a there's a in terms of history and in terms of the human understanding, as long as we apply a, a version of dead reckoning, then we'll be all right. And if we don't apply a version of dead reckoning, then we will be lost in the trackless ocean of time, and we will be utterly vulnerable to the vicissitudes and to the and to the motivations of people who who may or may not have our any of our interests at heart. But I think. In terms of being positive, it's always and only about individual responsibility. You know, individually and collectively, if we if we pay attention to the necessity to retain an understanding of where we came from, how how we got from yesterday to today, then we will be all right. We will be able to take the next step forward with dead reckoning because we will know exactly where we came from. I think that I mean I'm looking I, I do I've got these I've got a couple of podcasts of my own that are and what I try the conceit of them is that I, that I say that you know we can always look back at the at the recent past or the dim and distant past because there there being nothing new under the sun whatever we find ourselves whatever befalls us whatever trouble we find ourselves in the ancestors have at some point been in a version of the same predicament and if they if they survived it and how they survived it and how they came to terms with it and conceptualized it and so on we can draw upon that you know these 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 sources and and i think there's something i genuinely find there's something very uplifting in doing that you know we're, whatever we we you know we're, what we're what we're going through at the moment you know what seems to be an attempt to centralize power it's, it's been tried many times before and the, the technological capacity has never been there and it is now. But we, we know whence that, whence that desire comes. It's not a new desire for the few to want to dominate every aspect of the lives of the many. And and I was looking at, funnily enough, um, I was, there was a, a, a little news story uh, that's, that's arisen in, if you read the sort of things that I read, uh, up on Shetland, in that archipelago, there's uh, a sky port being built, from which, in the, in the you know not too far in the future, rockets will be launched. Right, it's going to be the first rocket launching facility in the British Isles in the British archipelago. And in that way of things, archaeologists were brought in to have a look at the site. It being Shetland, you know, it tends to be rich in archaeology. They were brought in just to look at what was there before it got damaged by the by the construction work. And the found the archaeologists have found that it was a site of uh, Bronze Age cremation and burial of of cremated human remains. So the kind of the poetry of that speaks to me. That means that where four thousand years ago our ancestors launched the spirits of their dead into infinity. In the 21st century, others are building rockets to fire into space. And, and I, I find there's something lyrical about that, that, that both of those aspirations to Adastra have ended up sitting one on top of the other. It just that that speaks to me that we're we're still what we are doing now in the 21st. There's some people who want to reach out into the into the into the reaches of space, into the invisible. And they're reminded 
literally, by where they, where they are, that four, three or 4,000 years ago, other people quite like them were doing a version of the same thing with the technology and the cosmology that was available to them. And, and so I think that whatever we, whatever we look out at in terms of the present and whatever future it is that we're, that we're frightened of, a, a version of it's happened before and a version of us survived it, else we wouldn't be here. And that alone, I think, is grounds for eternal optimism that, that some of us uh, will, will find the way to, to, to take the right path. I think, I think a lot of what's happening at the moment is a subversion of, of natural law. I think it, I think it fuels, I think I, my, myself and I think a lot of people have had a, an actual physiological response to a lot of what's going on at the moment. You know, they can actually feel uncomfortable in their skin about what's being done at the moment. And that's not illusory. I think we are having physiological risk. I think that's real. And and you feel it because what's being done is wrong. It's just wrong. It's not left or right. It's not conservative or labor or socialist or capitalist. It's wrong. And we can feel it. And and because so many people feel it, it it it, it will write itself. Mm. You know, it's in the it's in the natural order of things. You know, I think the the universe seeks equilibrium, and and I think a lot of what's going on at the moment is being is a subversion of that. And and history shows that the natural order of things has been subverted, or an attempt has been made in the past, and that which is being held under the surface of the water eventually bobs up again because it's where it belongs. I suppose uh, those reflections make me think about uh, the winding stair of Yeats or Finnegan's Wake, Joyce being influenced by Jean-Baptiste Vico and cyclical theories of history. And we keep coming back to the same spot, perhaps because there is something in our nature that keeps bringing us back to the same spot, but in a slightly different way. Um, But perhaps that gets a little too literary um, geeky. But but, uh, the other thing that I I reflect on um, with regards to what you just said there is that I've never thought of it in this, this way before, but I suppose something that has kept me grounded in the work that I do and in the opposition of basically 99% of the world is my understanding that the uh, all of the all of the rhetoric and all of the name calling that they want to put on top of people who are looking at conspiracy reality um, is truly rendered ridiculous by my dead reckoning and I'm sure the dead reckoning of many other people that you know, if I look throughout history, I see the history of oligarchs trying to wield as much power over uh, over people as possible, over as many people as possible. And the idea that that's happening in our day and age, oh, that's crazy. No, it's just what happens in every generation, and it's happening in our generation as well. So that, uh, that keeps me grounded in an understanding of where we are and where we're heading. People people often get gulled by the notion that things can be uh, too big to fail, but I think things always get so big that they always fail. And I think what what history also shows, to some extent, is that uh, things, the biggest thing, the bigger things get, the faster they fall apart. You know, Rome held itself together for five hundred years. Highs and lows, but it maintained an integrity. And then you you know you fast forward to the to the Soviet Union, which only lasted a lifetime, and and fell apart under the weight of its own 
uh, inhumanity. And and then and or, or you look at an edifice like the European Union, which is fragmenting, without a shadow of a doubt. It, it, too many too many disparate parts. It, it's it's fracturing. The United States of America, you know, the most the, the most powerful together, you, you know, uh, entity you, you might say that there has uh, has maybe ever been, looks like it's falling into civil war. Or you, or you could certainly suggest it might be, and so I think that and all, and all of those things were limited by the by the technologies that, that set them in train, and now we've got this whatever the centralising one world, you know, uh, new world order that's attempting to be everywhere, to be everything everywhere all at once, you know, to name check the Oscar winning movie, and so history would seem to suggest that something that big that's grown so fast like the ultimate puffball fungus will fall apart even faster under its own weight you know so it it's at the moment it looks like it might be the most terrifying entity and edifice ever well it might be but i i don't think it'll last but then again, the collapse of the Roman Empire wasn't good for the vast number of humanity. So I don't no. Im- imagine that the collapse of the Great well, Reset depends, will be anything to celebrate. Depends on your, it, it, depend, it depends on your point of view, I suppose, well, hmm. whether, you think it was, whether you think it was a, a, a good thing or not. And that, that is something that I very much worry about at the moment, the swinging pendulum. Yeah, yeah, because the, 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 the pendulum at the moment is, has been pushed into such a weird and extreme illogical anti-human place that when it swings back it's gonna you know it's got a hell of a long way to come uh, so that worry that, that that does worry me genuinely I think you know that you might think you want an end of all of this but uh, as you see when the when the when that when the pendulum swings back it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll take a lot of us with it whether we yeah. deserve it or not yeah yeah and the other thing that humbles me is to think for example um the American Revolution, for all of its its own faults, at any rate, assembled some of some of the brightest minds of that generation. At any rate, who were very learned people who genuinely studied history and really, truly thought and and argued and debated and in very articulate ways about the history of, say, the Roman Republic and other examples throughout history of how do we set up something that will. Uh, given flawed human nature and the way that things will go, how can we set this up in a way that will perhaps last as long as something like a Roman Empire, but not devolve into an empire? It will be a republic. It will maintain. And they tried their level best and certainly did not succeed in that, given the way that history played out. And I, th- I think, well, if we were in that position today of trying to set up some sort of system that would be able to saw, to go for hundreds of years, what <laughs> it's a hu- humbling thing to think, well, who in our generation would be of that caliber and that understanding of history who would be able yeah. to truly put those pieces together in a way that would, that would last? It's, uh, I'm not sure I'm hopeful. It's- it's very interesting you say that. I don't know. Have you run across um, uh, Pete Hegseth, The Battle for the American Mind, um, a book that came out in the last couple of years? And he, in, in amongst speculating about the way in which the American people have been uneducated or diseducated for the last 150 years and by design, um, he, he invokes the concept of paideia, which is Greek and means um, it's the it's the 
It's the totality of the environment in which a child is raised, it, it, like the water in which a fish lives in a in a in an aquarium. The child is is unaware of the water because it's just it's just there all the time, but it's it's affecting every aspect of the of the child's being. And so the the paideia is the reflection of the culture and the history and the the cosmology and the faith or not of the people, and and it, the and the child is shaped by all of that that paideia. And he, uh, in the book, he uh, he unpicks the idea that the that the people were uh, that there was a realization that a, 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 a very well educated, deep thinking population was hard to govern. And by the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century, wheels were set in motion to make sure that people were essentially prepared to be more like factory fodder than founding fathers. You yes, want these, Frederick you want Taylor Gates writing for the Rockefeller and, family about the uh, the schoolhouse of tomorrow or whatever it was, talking about how they need to essentially engineer a generation of people who will make good factory workers, and that's exactly what they set about doing. And but but it's also also worth paying attention to the fact that those founding fathers, those those uh, Franklins and the rest of Jeffersons, they were incredibly well educated cultural people. Who, who understood and read Latin and Greek and, and were versed in mathematics and astronomy and alchemy and goodness knows what all. You know, they were they were intellectually rich in, in ways that I could only fantasize about. And yet, and yet, although they came up with, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, they still overlooked the fact that they were slave owners. You know, they, even 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 with all they had. And even though they were loudly aspiring to want equality and and freedom for all and inalienable rights, <laughs> they still stumbled over the fact that they they were that they had enslaved other human beings, so that all their all their all their great education didn't you know didn't elite, didn't elevate them above that. Well, then we tear down their right, their but, statues. But what, what chance do we have? Well, we, we tear down their statues and thereby we will free ourselves from that history, right? Or something along those lines? Yeah. How does this all it's, work? It's, it's, I, I often quote this, but just only because it, it, I think I find it intensely moving, really. The, 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 the chair of moral philosophy in Glasgow University, I think I said this in Bath, was held by Francis Hutchison. Uh, who taught his people in the 1760s or the 1750s, and he taught that rather than manna from heaven, happiness was something that um, you that you produced by using all of your efforts to make other people happy, by improving their lot with with all of the strength in your muscles and all of the thoughts in your head, that your your collateral benefit would be your happiness. You would be made happy having given all of that energy and effort to making other people happy. And one of his students was John Witherspoon, who, who, who was invited to, uh, into the fledgling colonies to, to be the president of what became Princeton University. And he was one of the, the signatories of the, of the Declaration of Independence, and he probably had a hand in its composition. And there's every reason to think that the pursuit of happiness found its way into the American Declaration of Independence all the way from Francis Hutchison, chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow University. That that, that, that uh, society shaping notion had crossed the Atlantic you know, from a from a churchman in Glasgow, 
And that, that idea, I think, is is very important. That we, we think of pursuit of happiness now as being the right to chase all the fast cars and, and consumer durables you can get your hands on. But it's not. The pursuit of happiness is there in that document as it was meant by uh, Francis Hutchison and John Witherspoon, which is to say it's it's the effort that you expend in, in creating happiness for all that, as a side benefit, makes you happy too. Uh, and we need so we need to remember that you know you look you, I have just done it I've just said look America the United States of America was a fantastic maybe the best ever idea for the founding of a nation but it was but it was flawed it had inherent flaws right right from the beginning but it it's not helped by the fact that we don't even understand what the Declaration of Independence meant to say because we've lost the precision of the language. We don't we don't think enough about what is meant by pursuit and what is actually meant by happiness. Happiness for most people nowadays is more really what you might describe as drunkenness. It's more like a state of, you know, sensory overload where you're, you know, much like being, you know, having had too many glasses of wine at a party. And that's that's not what was meant by happiness when John Witherspoon or Francis Hutchinson were writing about it. That's not what they meant by happiness at all. And so, yeah. So, if you're mindful of the fact that a lot of it comes down to being precise, really paying attention to the language that you're using, and and considering the etymology and wondering what are you really saying, or those who crafted the language that you're using, what what great thoughts were they trying to make it possible to manifest? But they have disappeared up a blind alley there. Uh, but there's a lot uh, of incredibly important points in there. And I, I, I think you gesture to something uh, that's, that's of fundamental importance, which is the, the sort of the engineering out of the understanding of the language and of the history and the specific context of these ideas um, that I think, again, is part of a demonstrable um, actual plan that was put into place, not only through the miseducation system and the adoption of the Prussian edu- education system um, in America, in Japan, where I am, elsewhere around the world, but also uh, as uh, Norman Dodd, the head researcher of the Reese Commission back in the 1950s, examining the tax-exempt foundations and their um, board meeting minutes and other things that he was uncovering that showed that the the Carnegies and the Fords and the Rockefellers self-consciously chose to go into the uh, the uh, the a- academy at that time and s- take over, essentially monopolize the teaching of American history in particular as a way of shaping the mindset of the American public. This is part of the documented record of this congressional committee that uh, existed in the 1950s. So we know that this takes place and it is part of trying to shape us into a specific type of person. And now, of course, this now gets manifested in the culture wars that we are seeing today with history really being this contentious battleground that is taking place. I mean, what, you you want to say 1776 and all of that? No, 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 the real, it's the 1614 project, or maybe I've gotten that, you're wrong, but at any rate, no, you know, slavery was the real founding of America, etc., etc. And now this becomes the reimagining of history in a way that reconceptualizes the current fault lines in our political discourse today. And again, this is why it keeps coming back to the to history as story. And the way that we tell these stories is the way that we see ourselves in this world. 
And people mustn't be people mustn't be discouraged from this 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 thing that that's that has emerged about not being an expert, and that therefore, if you're not some sort of letter uh, qualified person, that you have you you're not you're barely even allowed to think about these things, far less talk to other people about them. People mustn't be uh, persuaded to think like that and to think about themselves in that way. You know, you, when you look back to something like the, the leaps forward that were taken during the Industrial Revolution in Britain, m- much of it, most of it, was done by well, amateurs. It, it wasn't. It wasn't lettered scientists making all these leaps forward with developing steam technology and the rest of it. It was guys having a go in their in the equivalent of their garages and, and garden sheds that that took the steps forward, that created and enabled the Industrial Revolution, which then reshaped the destiny of the planet. And that we're now being encouraged that, oh, well, if you're not if you're not one of us, if you're not part of the academy and you don't have the qualifications that we oversee, then you have no contribution to make. You know, pe- people must not be persuaded to think, you know, to think like that. And, you know, something like history, I, f- I feel very strongly as a kind of a, as a, just a, as a dilettante enthusiast, that everything that history has meant to me has not come because I was pursuing letters after my name or, or, or anything else. I just was thrilled by and inspired by the stories. And I'm, I continue to be inspired and thrilled by the fact that what I thought I understood 10 years ago turns out to be completely wrong. As it, as it, as it has unfolded, that's not a problem for me. I find that a very exciting prospect that I that I am now learning all over again, and 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 I've I've opened up to the possibility that you you know that the world can be read and understood in you know in a very different way. Well, Neil, I I think from the Birkenhead drill to the idea of dead reckoning on the the seas of history, I think we've had a very maritime metaphor rich conversation today. So I think we'll <laughs> yeah. probably. Yeah. We'll probably wrap it up here, but before we go, tell people about your work, what it is you do, how people can access it. Oh, well, uh, I suppose nowadays I consider myself to be a writer as much as anything else. I have, I've got a lot of books out there. Uh, my most recent was The Story of the World in 100 Moments, published by Transworld. Uh, I've got another book coming out in October. about. It's basically about ghosts and ghost stories and why we need them, why we've told each other ghost stories for thousands of years, all the way back to the epic of Gilgamesh. Um, I have a couple of podcasts that I make with a very good friend of mine, one's called The Story of the the World in a Hundred. No, (laughs) the podcast, that's the book. The, The podcast is My Love Letter to the World, and there's another one called My Love Letter to the British Isles, Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles. I have a a chat show, come current affairs show on GB News uh, on Saturday evenings, uh, and I think that about I think that about describes me. You'll find me out there. There's a whole a whole load of stuff out there on YouTube and all the usual platforms. Until it gets censored off the face of the planet, but oh, until someone presses delete. There will always be the physical books at any rate. All right, excellent, and of course the links will all be in the. Uh, show notes for this conversation. Neil Oliver, a fascinating conversation. I hope it is not the last that we will have. I hope we can do this again sometime, but thank you for your time. Oh, very much, James. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I love a free-ranging 
conversation that, that goes into unexpected territory. So thanks very much for having me.